0: Read from 1 John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of 1 John chapter 4, and when you find it, you can stand to your feet in honor of God's Word. 1 John chapter 4, back in the back. If you're turning from the very back, you'll see Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and then 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this... God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would come and help us to understand Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would speak to us by the power of Your Spirit. I pray that this would prove fruitful. Lord, I pray that as we attempt to engage with a lost culture... That You would help us to remember the things we learn from Your Word and that we are encouraged by the Gospel. Lord, as we gather here to uh, look back at what Christ has done at the cross, as we gather to proclaim the work of Christ on the cross and, and look forward to, to sitting and dining with Him again someday, Lord, I pray that You would meet with us here. Help us to grow by these means of grace. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I want to focus on verses 8 through 10 of this section that we read. 1 John 4, verses 8 through 10. And as we look at this passage, my hope is that you'll be strengthened in your faith and strengthened against attacks from the evil one which will come by way of his minions, demonic powers and spirits who will influence those of the world who we will come in contact with. In our day, right now, and some of you have probably already encountered this, there are many who would seek to use this very passage and specifically the the phrase, God is love, as an argument against us. Whenever we try to call sin, sin. Or whenever we call sinners to repentance. Or whenever we call one another as Christians to repentance. The world cannot comprehend this idea because they believe that the fact that God is love somehow stands in contradiction to the fact that we have a standard. That we would call people to a standard. And they say, how can you be so judgmental? Does the Bible not say God is love? And so, I want to help you see from this particular statement, God is love, that rather than standing against us, rather than being afraid of this, that this statement actually bolsters up everything the Bible teaches regarding the holiness of God, regarding the standard that God has, if we are to enter into His kingdom, the judgment of God, the hatred of God towards sin and His love toward sinners like us. So, that's where we're going. And when we walk out of here, we can hold God is love as another weapon in our arsenal, another arrow in our quiver that we can use to fight the attacks of Satan. We don't have to be afraid. And so that's that's the goal. So the first thing I want to look at is the context of this statement, God is love. Now I want to look at it, number one, in, in the book or in the letter of 1 John. If we look at 1 John, and you can flip with me if you've got your Bible, just kind of look with me, we're going to look at several different passages here. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John tells us why he is writing. He says, I write these things to you... Who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing to whom? He's writing to you who believe. Believers. Christians. And the purpose to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that or so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's trying to encourage and strengthen the faith of Christ. Christians, that's why he wrote. The same purpose he wrote his Gospel. This is the same author of John's Gospel. And he wrote so that they would know the Christ and believing have life in His name. here he's writing to believers so that they would know for certain that they have eternal life. So if you're a Christian and you're struggling with doubts of whether or not you're a believer, am I really producing the fruit of a Christian? Like we studied this morning. And we want to know, is my life a fruit-bearing life, then a letter like 1 John is a letter that you would go to to read and study and ask yourself, does this describe me? So that's why he's writing. So that we would know that we have eternal life. Well, how do we know that? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, he says, if you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. So he says, I'm writing these things so that you may know, and if you want to know, I'm going to show you the the tests of righteousness. Here's some things you can look at, basically, that flow out of the character of God in Christ. You can look at these things and you can say, if my life is producing these things, then... I've been born of God. I've been born again. I have the Holy Spirit and I have a new heart. So he's writing two believers to confirm their faith and the whole letter is just lists and tests of genuine faith. Here's what a Christian looks like. Here's what you won't do and here's what you will do. And he does that by delineating this righteousness. Here's what you will look for. Now look at chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Listen to how he says it here. By this we shall know, again, we're wanting assurance, by this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's important. Remember that. Love one another just as He has commanded us. <clears throat> Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us so the ultimate test of a believer if you really want to know am i born again of the spirit of god is obedience to the commands of christ and love for the brothers love for other christians love for the brethren And that love is key. Love. Remember, we're studying this phrase. God is love. In Galatians 5.14, Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what he's referring to there is the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10 all of the commandments that deal with our horizontal relationships with other people he's saying that you could sum all of that up in love your neighbor as yourself that's what Jesus was doing when the lawyer came to him in Matthew 22 and says teacher what is the greatest commandment and his response you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and first commandment. He summarized commandments 1 through 4. If you love God with everything that you are, first four commandment, the first four commandments are covered. And then he says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. He sums up the entire ten commandments in love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. True, heartfelt devotion to God with everything that you are and heartfelt devotion to your neighbor just like yourself is the best evidence that you've been born again of God. You're obeying God's commands. Love fulfills the law. Love for God. Love for neighbor. So John is writing to Christians and he's saying, Here's how you know that you have eternal life, that you obey God, you love God, and you love your neighbor. Jesus says, here's the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. A theme of this letter is love. It's huge in 1 John. You cannot read three or four sentences in 1 John without coming across the word love. As a matter of fact, this word love, in some form, agapeo is mentioned 46 times in this little letter. 46 times. This is love for God. This is love for one another over against. Love for the world and love for the things of the world and hatred for your brother. Love, 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 love God. Love your brothers. Love God. Love your brothers. Don't love the world. Don't hate your brothers. Love your brothers. This is how Christians act. And this love coupled with obedience to the commands of God is the ultimate test of true saving faith. And so it is in this context of love that John writes, God is love. So then let's look at it in the context of John or 1 John chapter 4. Just in this chapter. He begins in verses 1 through 3. With a doctrinal test. And this is what he does. Back and forth in the letter. He talks about doctrine. And then he talks about morals. Doctrine and morals. In verses 1-3, through three, he makes them aware of the false doctrine. And then in verses 4-6, through six, he helps them see the necessity of sound doctrine. In other words, here's what you shouldn't believe. But here's what you should believe. Get your doctrine right. And then he jumps right back into the theme of love. In verses seven through 10, he says, "Look at God's love." And in verses 11 through 21, he says, "Now model God's love." Look at verse seven. "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God knows God. Love is from God. Look at God. You should love because love comes from God." And then look at verse 11, "Beloved." If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Look at the love of God, now love one another. And this is the theme all throughout Scripture when we are compelled to live as Christians. Look at what God has done for us in Christ and then live that out. Receive it and then live it. Receive it and live it. And that's exactly what He's doing here. Look at God, look what He's done, and now live it. Now what's amazing is that out of 46 times in this letter that the word love is mentioned, in the 15 verses between verse 7 and verse 21, the word love is used 27 times. Over half of the uses of the word love are right in this little section. So tell me, what is the summarizing word of this section of verses 7 through 21. It is love. He's talking about love. It is in this context that John says, God is love. He's not talking about justice. If he were, he could say God is justice. He's not talking about mercy. If he were, he could say God is mercy. He's not talking about wrath. He's not talking about impassibility, omnipotence, eternality, immutability or any other attribute of God, if he were, he could say, God is, and fill in the blank. But he's talking about love, therefore, he can say, God is love. The topic at hand in the book is the test of genuine faith. And the true test of genuine faith is love for God and love for neighbor. And this love that we are to have is modeled for us by God The topic of love drives the letter. We have to understand this. There is a theme. This is what the world never comprehends when they would use the Bible against us is context. Context, context, context. Why does it say this here? John does not just simply leap into a teaching on the nature of God. He's not talking about how we should treat the world, and then all of a sudden say, oh, and by the way, God is love. He's talking about love between us, the brothers. He says, if you don't have this, you don't know God because God is love. If he were talking about how we should be discerning against sin and, and have hatred against sin, he could say, because God is hateful towards sin. God is wrathful against sin. But He's talking about love. Now, so that's the context. The book is about love. Now, second, the meaning of the statement, God is love. This statement is central to the arguments against us, and it's definitely central to what John's saying here. God is love. They misunderstand it because... Or the world often misunderstands it, we often misunderstand it too, but the world will often use this against us because they don't know God, they don't know what love is, and they don't know how to read the Bible. And so they come to this and, and they're off. So what does the statement mean, God is love? Well, number one, it is a copula. That is, it is a statement that links two things. But, it is not a reversible copula. Okay? So here's... Here's an example. The sky is blue. That's a copula. But we cannot reverse it and say blue is the sky. Blue is not the sky, blue is a color. But the sky is blue. That's a true statement. Now, if I said this, ice is frozen water. I could reverse that and say frozen water is ice. That's a reversible copula. This statement God is love not only is it false to say love is God in the original Greek grammar it doesn't work God is love in chapter 1 verse 5 he says God is light but we would not say light is God that's false in John's gospel chapter 4 verse 24 he says God is spirit But we would not say, Spirit is God. Now we would say, the Holy Spirit is God. But that's not what he's talking about there. Spirit is not God. The Holy Spirit is God. The third person of the Trinity in particular is God. But just simply, Spirit. I have a Spirit, but that Spirit is not God. God is Spirit, but Spirit is not God. God is light, but light is not God. God is love, but love is not God. He's saying, God is love. And we need to understand how the attributes of God work if we're going to understand this statement. Love is an attribute of God. But it's not His only attribute. There's more. Justice is an attribute of God. Wrath is an attribute of God. Immutability, the fact that God never changes is an attribute of God. Impassibility, the the fact that God has no reactionary emotions or impulses in response to the things that happen in the world and in the universe, is an attribute of God. Love is another attribute of God. And like I've already said, if John were writing for another purpose, he could say, God is wrath. God is justice. God is... Holy. Well, we wouldn't say God is more love than he is justice. They work together. We wouldn't say he is more powerful than he is gentle. All of his attributes are all equally present in their fullest extent in God all of the time. Every attribute is always true of all of God all of the time. He's always. All love at the exact same time that He is all wrath. He has wrath towards sin, and He has love where love needs to be applied, and He has justice where justice needs to be applied, and that never changes. And that's good. See, we think that because I sin, and automatically God responds with anger. No, God has always hated that sin. God was not waiting for you to sin to be angry with that sin. He's outside of time. He knew it was coming. He's been angry with it for eternity. We come along and sin. His hatred for sin, His wrath for sin, His love for sinners has always existed. We simply come along and um, fill in the blanks, if you will, that He has decreed from eternity past. So love is another attribute. And it's not when we say God is love, we're not saying that God is simply loving. Because if we just said God is loving, then someone could say, well, I'm just not really that loving, and so I can't love like God loves. This is the difference between possessing an attribute and being an attribute. God is love. He doesn't just possess it. He is it. All of the love that there is comes from God. He's the source of God of love. And so... That's why this is a test of genuine faith. If God is love, and I say I know God, and I have a relationship with God, and God lives in me, then I will love. That's what He says in verse 8 at the beginning. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. He is it. He is love. What is love? Well, we talked about this Recently, and I'm glad, it kind of helps us breeze through this. This word agape, this is the determined, covenant, committed love. We use Dr. Bacham's definition, an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. And I would say that that action is the pursuit of the best interest of the object, regardless of personal cost. That's what this love is. Who is God? God is the just and gracious creator and sustainer of all things. The only true and righteous judge. The Lord of the universe. The thrice holy master of heaven. The one who was and is and is to come. The first and the last. The great I am. This God in His essence is love. That's what this statement means. God is love. Therefore, to know God and have a relationship with God, to have God's Spirit within you is automatically to have love. You can't have God and not have love within you because love is one of God's communicable attributes. When we get God, we get His love. It is a love that we can receive and then mimic outward towards others. So that's what the statement means, it is an attribute of His, it it is bound up in the nature and the character of God just like all of His other attributes. Now in verses 9 and 10 John explains it as if we were still left clueless, still fuzzy, as if the world needed more evidence or less evidence. In verses 9 and 10, he just tells us exactly what he means when he says, God is love. We get to peer inside of this love, this love that God is, so that we might understand it. So that we can begin to display it, so that we can look at our hearts and ask: Is this the love that I have for my brother and sisters in Christ? In number nine, or in verse nine, he says. In this, the love of God was made manifest. In other words, here's a picture of the love of God. In verse 10, in this is love. He's going to show us exactly where we are to look if we want to see the love that is being spoken of here. So as we unpack this love that God has shown, that God is, we can also ask ourselves, is this what the world is speaking of when they charge us for being unloving when we call them to repentance or when we call sin, sin and they say, you're supposed to love because God is love. Is this what they mean? Because this is what John means. This is what God means when his Holy Spirit inspired these words. In verse 9, we read of God's indescribable love towards his enemies. In verse nine it says, "In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him." So look what God did to show us His love. It says, he sent his only Son into the world." This immediately sparks into our minds probably the most famous Bible verse that there is, John 3:16. For God so loved the world, and Calvinists should not be afraid of this verse, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave His Son. And this is prefigured by Abraham... And Isaac, when they're walking up Mount Moriah and and Abraham carries the fire and the knife and he lays the wood on the back of Isaac. And Isaac asks him, we have have the, the wood, father, and we have the knife, father, but where is the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And they walk. They keep walking. They get to the top of the mountain and eventually... It's almost as if there's no struggle at all. Abraham just takes Isaac and ties him up and lays him on the altar. He is about to give his only son. And the angel of the Lord stops Abraham. He says, now I know that you believe that you'll do whatever I ask. And they look over in the thicket and they find out Abraham was wrong the whole time because he said... God will provide a lamb. And it wasn't a lamb in the thicket. It was a ram caught by his horns. When we read here, God sent His only Son into the world. This is the fulfillment of what Abraham said. Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. And this is where he did it. He sent... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world into the world. See, God did not withhold His Son, His only Son. He gave Him. God the Father made the ultimate, most heart-wrenching sacrifice a father could ever make. But why? Why did He do this? Well, it says, God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So that we could live. Now why did God have to send His Son so that we could live? Well, Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead. God gave His Son so that we could live, so that we could be alive. Now think about that. When the world says, how can you judge... Don't you know that God is love? Let me ask you something. Did God love us so much that He just sort of turned a blind eye to us where we were? Did God love us so much that He said, well, if that's where you find yourself, if that's how you identify yourself, then I guess I'll just leave you where you are rather than ruffle your feathers. God's love is not a love that leaves you where you are. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God sent His Son so that you might live, so that you would become the opposite of who you were. The love of God is the love that takes us from where we are, dead in sin, and makes us alive to Christ and dead to sin. That which I was embracing and, and engulfed in, I am now dead to and have turned my back to. And that which I had turned my back on, the God of creation and His Son, I have now been embraced by and engulfed in. We're the opposite of who we were. This is what God's love does. Romans 5, 6-8 through For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the picture of love. When John says, God is love. Is that what the world asks us for when they say, "You you should love us? You should just let us be? I don't think it is. In verse 10, we see a picture of the wrath-absorbing love of God. 1 John 4.10 And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. It's not a love that comes that way, it's a love that comes this way. It's not a love we comprehend, it's a love that comes from Him. It's a lot of love that we conjure up, it's a love that He exudes. Not that. We have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, look at what God did. He sent His Son. The love of God is shown in God making the ultimate sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice that the world has ever known. Is this this what the LGBT group asking us to do? Are they asking us to make the greatest sacrifice the world has ever known on their behalf? No. They're asking us to just chill out. Why the fuss? Celebrate. Have fun with us. Enjoy this. Lighten up about it. God did not celebrate with us when we were dead in our sin. He did not lighten up about sin. He has yet to lighten up about sin. He sent His only Son why did He do it? To be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, to be the the appeasing sacrifice, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Jesus died to appease God's wrath. Was and is God angry with sinners? I don't know. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To appease God's wrath. Wrath against what? Wrath against sin. Wrath against sinners. Psalm 5.5. 5. Psalm 11.5. God hates sin. God is opposed to sin. He stands over and against sin. He's set Himself against it in battle. It is everything that is opposed to Him and He to it. So Jesus comes to die to absorb God's holy, righteous anger towards sin and sinners. Whose sin? My sin. Our sin. The love of God is not this warm, fuzzy affection that says, well, I just look past you and see the best in you. I see the potential of what you could be, and so I just sort of overlook your flaws. No, God does not overlook our flaws. He changes our flaws. The love of God is an act of the will, God's determination to redeem a people, accompanied by a motion that led to action. And that action was Him sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, so that He could condemn sin in the flesh so that the sin problem would be dealt with. There's a sin problem. And the world likes to act like, well, there's no sin problem, but there is a sin problem. Christ died for sin, for our infractions. The list of do's and don'ts. Oh, Christianity is more than a list of do's and don'ts. Yes, it is, but Jesus died for my breaking of a list of do's and don'ts. He held perfectly, perfectly to a list of do's and don'ts in my place. So God's love, the love that God is, is displayed not by God celebrating and saying, Yippee, I'm glad you finally discovered who you are and you're finally happy now. The love of God is displayed when He made the ultimate sacrifice that a father could ever make on behalf of rebel sinners. Enemies to the core in order to pay for their wretched wickedness and change them from who they were to who He would have them to be. Not who they wanted to be, who He would have them to be. While we were yet sinners, we didn't want to be like Christ. Most of us still don't want to be like Christ. And He says, I'm going to make you like Christ. He doesn't celebrate with us in our sin. He changes us. So to celebrate sin, or to be indifferent to sin... Is the very opposite of the love of God. And so to quote this verse and act as though it demands that we allow sinners to just have their sin, we just hang out in your sin and be cool with it, and this includes us, is, is the ultimate contradiction. Christ died to absorb the wrath of God. Why did God's wrath need to be satisfied? Why did it need to be appeased? Why, why does it matter? That God's angry with us. What benefit is it to us that Christ has done this? 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See, the world seems to think that that verse stops at not counting their trespasses. Oh, God doesn't count trespasses. No, it says not counting their trespasses against them. He does count trespasses. But if you're a believer, He just doesn't count it against you. He counted it against His Son. He poured His wrath out on His Son so that we could be brought back into fellowship with God. So it is in the death of Christ on the cross that we are brought into fellowship with God. We were estranged. We were rebels. We were wicked without bounds. There is no end to our wickedness should God choose not to restrain us. We think that our nation is bad. The reason it's only as bad as it is is because God has put His hand out and said, you will only go this far You pitiful nation. He stopped us. And if He moves His hand, there's no bounds to our wickedness. In our case, the words of Jonathan Edwards were true. Imagine this coming from pulpits today. This is Jonathan Edwards. Quote, His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in His sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in His eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended Him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did His prince." That's where we were. I mean, we might not like that language, but that's true. That's just where we were. And where anyone who's lost is. Kind old lady, living in her house, never hurt to fly, that's where she is. The homosexual, parading in the streets, streets, flaunting their sexuality. That's where they are. There's no distinction there when it comes to our sinfulness. And yet, in spite of this, God, because He is love, would not leave us like that. But God, because He is love, determined to change you. He says, I will not have you continue that path. God, because He is love, said, I will make that sinner my friend. And I will be His friend. God, because He is love, sent His only Son into the world to be despised and rejected by the world to live a life of sorrow, to be handed over by one of His closest friends, nailed to a Roman cross, bear the full weight of His wrath, so that I could be His friend, so that the church could be gathered to Him. And all of this, not to leave us, not to make light of our sin, to change us, to show us just how weighty our sin is. Not to let us continue in our sin, but to end our sin, end our sin problem. Not to act as though the law doesn't matter, but to pay for our breaking of the law and to fill us with His Spirit so that we might now live in accordance with His commands. And all of this so that we could be reconciled to God. And all of this is because of the act of Jesus on the cross for the sins of of His people. That's why we're here. We take the bread and we take the juice in honor, in remembrance of Christ on the cross, reconciling sinners to God. Not leaving us where we were, but taking us and changing us. So I'm going to pass the, the bread and we'll begin a time of self-examination.